Acts 20, and uh, we're going to continue going through this book, reading verses 1 through 6. Hear the Word of God. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Father, we thank you for this, your word. I pray that you would enable me to faithfully give an exposition of it and for us to receive it. We continue to worship you, and we glory in all of your provision, and we especially glory that you have given to us your inerrant word. And we want to understand it now, and we ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, the passage we read may not seem like it has a lot to offer to us because it's uh, just a listing of names and dates and places. But when you read Romans and 2 Corinthians in light of this passage, there's a lot of things that open up. And when you read this passage in light of 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7, you realize, wow, this little section is covering a whole year of his ministry and a pile of information. And when you take those two together, I think there's four major themes that flow from this passage. Now, first of all, we see his steadfastness in ministry in a time of great depression and discouragement. And that's in verses 1 through 2. And then in 2b through 3a, we see steadfastness in love even when the Corinthians had been abusing him. And then in verses 3 through 6, we see steadfastness in danger. And then the fourth theme is a steadfast commitment to community even during a time when it would have been very easy for Paul to become cynical. Now, you're not going to see the first uh, major theme that I'm going to look at unless you see this passage in light of 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. Those seven chapters give a whole pile of information of what's happening in verses 1 through 2. So let me read those verses again. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, dot, 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 up through that statement, and before Paul gets to Greece, which we'll look at in a bit, all kinds of things have happened. I've given you an extensive outline of that. Don't worry, we're not going to go through that entire outline. I've given that for background information so that if you have any questions, when I give my brief summary, uh, you can go to that and do some further summary uh, study. But let me, let me give you the brief summary. Paul had been rejected by Corinth. He had been vilified. He had been attacked by the, the leaders. And 2 Corinthians says that he was deeply wounded uh, by that church. Uh, they made him feel terrible. And what was most discouraging is that there had been no signs of repentance despite two letters and a brief visit that Paul had made. Now, the two letters he's already written to them is first... Uh, well, actually, there was an, a letter that we don't have today. It's sometimes referred to as the lost letter of uh, Paul. 
And then there was the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians and some brief visit that must have been a disastrous visit which made him decide, I'm not going to go back to Corinth like I had planned uh, until there's some kind of reconciliation that maybe Titus can establish. So he sends Titus to try to patch things up and Paul himself travels up the coast from Ephesus up to Troas. And when he gets to Troas, there is a wide open door of ministry that God uh, gives to him. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. So he ministers there for some time. He's hoping while he's there in Troas that Titus is going to come and bring him some good news from Corinth. Well, he waits and he waits and he doesn't hear from um, uh, Titus. And so what he does is he crosses over from Troas over to Philippi across the sea. Now, apparently, this was a time when he had one of his shipwrecks. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, it speaks of three shipwrecks that had happened by the time you get to verse 6 of Acts chapter 20. And apparently, one of those shipwrecks happened in his crossing of the, of the sea here. In fact, that verse speaks of him spending a day and the night in the deep, which I understand is him floating around in the open sea for a day and a night before he is finally uh, picked up by some vessel. Uh, he was near death during that uh, period of time. And that verse and other scriptures indicate that Paul's health was a wreck. Uh, his body was just absolutely worn out. He was depressed in spirit. And I want to read just a, a sampling of the Scriptures that you could read. And if you want to follow along, it's in 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look, first of all, at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us. Now take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears... Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Now look at verses 12 through 13. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and the door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now on this trip, at some point, he finds out that the Corinthians, some of the leaders and others there are making yet another accusation against him. This time, they're accusing Paul of lying, of being unreliable and having fickleness. Uh, they claim in his letter, that his first lost letter, that he had said that he was going to come to Corinth and then go on to Macedonia. But now, Paul is saying he's going to go to Macedonia first and then come to Corinth. And so they accuse him of being fickle, of changing uh, his mind. He can't win for losing. They don't want him in Corinth. They, they don't even want his presence. But then when he says he's not coming to Corinth, then they use that against him as well. And Paul is, had all kinds of attacks. He's so discouraged that uh, he's almost overwhelmed. But he says God's grace sustained him during all this time. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 
and verses 7 through 12. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Now take a look at chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7, and uh, verses 5 through 7. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by your consolation, etc. At some point, while he's in Macedonia, he gets word from Titus that the Corinthian church, at least most of them, had repented and they want to be reconciled with Paul. So that was good news indeed. But he still spends a couple of chapters defending his actions because there are still some false apostles out there who have been accusing uh, the Apostle Paul. And um, uh, what he does in this book is he affirms his love for the church of Corinth and he tells them in the first couple chapters especially that the reason that he didn't come to them first uh, was because of his love for them and that he wanted his visit, his next visit to be a cordial one and not a severe one. He knows if he had to come to uh, Corinth first and they had not repented, that his discipline would have to be extremely severe. He'd have to call God, down God's judgment upon them. Now, he also says that he never communicated to them that he had firm plans to go to Corinth it was his desire, it was his intention. If you look at 2 Corinthians 1, verse 15, it uses a quite different word for his plans to go to Corinth. It's a, a desire or an intention. But look at 2 Corinthians 2, 1. That's a strong word, determined. And what was it determined? Even in 1 Corinthians, you, you read in 1 Corinthians 16, I think it is, that he had determined to go to Macedonia first and then back to Corinth. And so even there, that they were wrong. Now, I'll let you read the rest of it for yourself, all of the reasoning that, uh, that he goes through. But here, the first point of this section is this. Despite depression and great weakness of body, Paul proves steadfast to the Lord and steadfast to other believers in ministry. Despite all kinds of terrible things that had happened, uh, he continued in ministry. Uh, he was more concerned for the welfare of other believers than he was for his own. He ministered to the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica. Romans 15 verse 19 says uh, he even traveled into the very northern regions just beyond Macedonia into Illyricum, which is uh, Yugoslavia, what's the modern day name for that? But anyway, he's traveled all over the place. He's written the book of 2 Corinthians during this time, ministering joy into the lives of the Corinthians. And uh, uh, he uh, uh, has, according to Acts 20, verses 1 through 2, traveled throughout all of Macedonia, giving them encouraging words. Now, let's just skip down over all of the outline, down to the bottom of page 1, and take a look at Point C, uh, five lessons that we can learn from this visit to Macedonia. First, don't allow peer pressure 
to dictate your actions. Despite the pressure of the Corinthians who had accused Paul of planning in the flesh rather than planning in the spirit, that's 2 Corinthians 1.17, despite their accusations that he was fickle and he didn't love them and care for them, 2 Corinthians 1.17 and chapter 11, verse 11, despite their accusations, hey, your no doesn't mean no and your yes doesn't mean yes, 2 Corinthians 1.18 through 22, Paul did not cave in to their demands. It's sort of like a petulant child, you know. The parent says no to them and they say, you don't love me, you hate me. And they're trying to manipulate into getting Paul to doing something. But Paul knows exactly what God desires him to do and he does not seek his approval from man. If we live more by the fear of man than we do by the fear of God, we're not going to make the right decisions like Paul did. Now, Paul... He makes the right decision, but for about a year, it seems like his right decision wasn't working. It seems like, okay, I'm doing the right thing, but it sure isn't paying off. Eventually, it does pay off, but there is a lot of time where his faith is tested on this. And if you live more by the fear of man than you do by the fear of God, you're not going to be able to make decisions like Paul did. Galatians 1 and verse 10 uh, talks about Peter's caving into peer pressure and it says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So that's the first lesson. Don't allow peer pressure to dictate your actions. Yes, listen to people. Yes, consider other options. Yes, be open-minded. But if you know what God wants you to do... Don't be swayed because of the pressure that people put upon you. Now, there's so often we desire the approval of others that we can be swayed from God's will. Now, let me point out that needing approval is built right into every man, woman, and child. Don't think that that's a weird thing, that you want people's approval. It's just that it's been distorted. God made Adam and Eve to need His approval. Uh, and to bask in the, the well done, thou good and faithful servant, to say, oh good, I'm glad I pleased the Lord because I want to please the Lord with my service. But what happened in the fall is that got twisted around. Instead of looking for God's approval, we're constantly looking for approval from other people. That's what happens to us. And this is one of the lessons that leaders have got to learn. They've got to fight against this and sort through their priorities and say, Lord, I know my heart's so strongly desiring the approval of man, but I want your approval first and foremost. Okay, second lesson that I see is Paul's flexibility. He tentatively had planned to travel to Ephesus earlier, and we saw in the last chapter that because of the open door of opportunity, fantastic opportunity, he decided, okay, I'm going to postpone my trip here as long as I can, then he planned to go to Corinth first, but because he realized this is not going to be in Corinth's best interest if I do this, he changes his plans. He goes to Macedonia first. Then he plans to go to Macedonia earlier, but according to 2 Corinthians, uh, where he says, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me. He decided, okay, I'm going to stick around in, in Troas. What he's learning as an apostle is he's got to constantly be flexible and adjust his plans to God's divine appointments, God's opportunities that he is opening up. And I think it's rigidity. It's rigidity that makes many leaders ineffective. Third, don't let spiritual depression rob you of your ministry energy. 
Oh, what energy Paul is showing uh, in these verses uh, where he's embracing these people. And he's uh, preaching throughout the region and he's speaking encouraging words into their lives. Now, he doesn't feel like speaking encouraging words to them. He wants encouragement, right? His heart is so discouraged. All leaders are going to experience depression or at least discouragement from time to time and they're going to have to wrestle with it. They're going to have to fight uh, with this. You look at Moses and David and Elijah and... And uh, who are some of the other greats? Jonah, uh, you know, that had incredible deep-seated depression where it almost made them want to die. And they had to fight that. And you can look at modern leaders like Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards. Here's what Satan tries to do. He'll try to get you so preoccupied with how miserable you feel, you're thinking about yourself that you completely abandon ministry to other people. Uh, This happened to Martin Luther a number of times and his wife, Katie, really helped him. Uh, There was this one time, though, where even she couldn't encourage him. Uh, He was so depressed, he just shut the doors to ministry. He says, I'm not not ministering to people anymore. He didn't want to talk to people. He just sat in in his house and moped. And she tried to encourage him and she just couldn't. So she tried a different tack. She put on black funeral clothing and went around the household and was working. Finally, he was asking, are you going to a funeral today? And she said, "Uh, no, but since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in mourning. (laughs) And that little bit of humor got him out of his funk and he just, he went ahead and back into ministry again. But Luther found he had to constantly fight against this, this tendency to abandon ministry, to lose energy in ministry because of his discouragements. Charles Spurgeon said this, I am, subject, I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. But I always get back again by this. I know that I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in Him. And if He falls, I shall fall with Him. But if He does not, I shall not. Because he lives, I shall live also. And I spring to my legs again and fight with my depressions of spirit and get the victory through it. And so may you do, and so you must, for there is no other way of escaping it. Father, is there are times when you are going to be depressed, discouraged beyond belief because of your finances or because of troubles at at work or troubles at home and what your tendency is going to be is, is to go to your family and dump on them and not give encouraging words to them but just to make them share in your misery and God says you got to fight that you got to do like Paul you got to bring words of joy to your family like he did in Romans you've got to fight your tendency to just give up on your ministry. Now, certainly, there's going to be times where you're going to have to still correct and say, hey, look, you need to deal with this as well. I go through these, these difficult times of depression myself. Paul shared with Corinth that. But the point is that you can't let your misery rub off on everybody else. Leaders learn how to fight their depression and be steadfast in a positive ministry to their family. Fourth lesson. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul had a lot of evil that had been thrown at him by Corinth. 
Uh, we're going to look at that more under point number two after he gets reconciled with them and he has joy in ministering to them. But right here, I want to point out that Paul's ministry to Corinth came before they repented. It came while they were still being mean to him. If you want a challenge to your faith that will enable you to be like Caleb of old. Here Caleb was, an 80-year-old, and he's had a whole bunch of victories in the past, and he could have just said, well, we'll let the young bucks continue on with this warfare. But no, he's always pressing forward, and he says, Lord, give me this mountain. I want another mountain to conquer. If you want that kind of faith, here's what I challenge you to do. I challenge you to ask God to give you grace to minister to others even when they don't deserve it, even when they're not responding to you the way that you wish that they would respond to you. They don't appreciate you. That will require supernatural grace. That will require faith. In fact, this is the stuff that the heroes of the faith were made of in Hebrews chapter 11. You want to be a hero like those in Hebrews chapter 11? Well, I challenge you, minister positively into your family, even when your family's not responding to you the way that you wish that they would. Now, obviously, your position is not that of an apostle. Perhaps you're just a child. Perhaps you're a child that uh, has to put up with ornery brothers and sisters or, uh, you know, parents with a negative attitude. Or perhaps you're a wife who has to put up with the miserable attitudes of your husband, like, man, he's always tearing and dragging us down. Or maybe you're a husband who's trying to be positive and investing in your family, but you're being undermined at every point. Well, what I encourage you to do, read the book of 2 Corinthians. Book of 2 Corinthians, it teaches a lot of things, but one thing it teaches is how to be a leader even in the midst of discouragement, how to be positive even in the midst of great discouragement and depression. He was steadfast in ministry. He refused to be overcome by evil. He declared a war of love. Now, even our kids have had to do this uh, over and over again. Uh, maybe one child uh, will be picking on another child and and uh, being mean to them and making them feel miserable and they get bent out of shape about this, we do have to take the, the persecutor aside and discipline him and instruct him in the Lord. But we also take the persecuted child aside and we tell him, look, all through life you're going to have to face sinful, mean people just like your brother or your sister. And uh, you might as well learn the lessons of grace right here, right now in the family. And we have them go through, you know, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, verse 21. And we say, look, how do you overcome evil with good? How do you declare a war of love? And this uh, girl or this boy will do good things for the other person, maybe baking cookies for them and, and writing nice notes to them and trying to overcome this other person with good. Every one of our children has had to go through this. And so, here, here's the point. When you're reading through historical passages like this, don't just read them as historical abstractions, something that happened back then. Try to apply it into your own life right now. What the Scripture is saying is every one of you can be heroes of faith like the Hebrew 11 saints. You can be a hero like Paul. You can live by God's grace right where you are in your families. Okay, fifth lesson. Learn that leaders must face emotional pain. Uh, sometimes I will tell people who think that they want to go into the ministry, um, and I know they can't. They get bent out of shape with pain. 
not to even bother to go into the ministry until they deal with this subject because they're going to get beat up. They're going to get abused over and over again in the ministry. But the lesson you really need to learn is it's not just pastors. Leaders of every stripe are going to face pain. It's just part of leadership. You're going to face pain. Don't think you can be a father, a good father, without having pain. Every one of us needs to learn that being steadfast in Christ means being willing to face pain. Now let's move on to Paul's trip to Greece. Acts 20, um, near the end of verse 2, this is where we're going to pick up here, just a little phrase that says, He came to Greece and stayed three months. Now we know from other scriptures that the part of Greece that he stayed in was Corinth. Now that's an interesting thing. This is the church that has caused him nothing but trouble and grief, nothing but pain. And to me, this shows that there was true reconciliation that had happened between Corinth and the Apostle Paul. Uh, Some people, when they've had conflict, they know they need to apologize and make up. But they're not really restored to deep fellowship and communication. Yeah, they have civil attitudes Uh, with each other, but they're not really getting involved in each other's lives, and so there really is not the kind of uh, uh, deep reconciliation that the Scripture calls for. And if I had time, I would go through with you 14 principles of conflict resolution that Paul says he engaged in with Corinth. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, but you can just read that chapter on your own. 2 Corinthians 7, what he did is he sought to win people, not just arguments. And it's just brilliant the way he went about this. Our tendency is to want to default to winning an argument, whether we lose the person or not. But he didn't do that. And you know that he succeeded because he says that his relationship with Corinth was better after this fiasco than it was before. His, uh, and Titus's relationship, he says, was better with Corinth afterwards than it was uh, before. And so despite being hurt and abused, Paul got close to these guys again. He pursued them. He spent three months with them. To me, this shows the amazing power of God's grace. Second thing that I detail in your outlines is that Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth during this three-month period. So there's two books that he wrote in these six verses. In in verse um, 1, first part of verse uh, 2, he wrote 2 Corinthians. Then during the three-month stay in Greece, he wrote uh, Romans. Now, in Romans, what a joyful book. Uh, it's, It's trying to instill joy into the hearts of the people there and steadfastness and faith. And what I get from this is Paul did not allow pain to rob him of this joy. And we need to learn this as well. Now, let me give five additional lessons from this phrase which uh, describes his time in Greece. First lesson, don't allow bitterness in your heart to creep into your heart and to allow it to divide you from other people. Now, if you think you have the right to be bitter and upset with this person, you're not going to talk to this person again. I want you to read 2 Corinthians And I want you to ask yourself, have I been abused worse than Paul was abused? I doubt very much most of us have been abused as much as Paul was. Now, Paul worked his tail off at Corinth, and they still complain that he's not working hard enough. And they didn't even pay him. 
That, that was the kicker. Now, if they'd been paying him, you know, he could maybe put up with a little grief on that. They're not even paying. They have totally unrealistic expectations. And then Paul says they had completely shut their hearts off from him. He was frustrated. He could not get near them. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 2. And then they said, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. Now, if you were a preacher, how would you like it if they said that to you? That'd be a pretty painful thing to say. They're in effect saying, we can't stand Paul's preaching. He's a lousy preacher. Not only that, he's ugly. Uh, we can't stand the sight of this guy. We wish you'd just pack it up, give it up. You're not going to make a preacher, Paul. You're not going to make an apostle. Then there were some who said, Paul is a fool. That's 2 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Others said, Paul is inferior. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Others said, Paul doesn't love us. It's clear he doesn't love us. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 11. Now, there's so many things like that that were wounds after wounds after wounds into his life that could have enabled bitterness to creep into Paul's heart where he would shut himself off from them and say, fine, go stew in your mess. I'm not going to deal with you guys anymore. But he didn't do that. Let me read to you from uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11. He said, oh, Corinthians... We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding your affection from us. Now, this is the hardest part to deal with in conflict management. It's to get two people who have broken fellowship with each other, whether it's a husband or a wife or it's two members in the church, to get these people who have broken fellowship. They may be hanging around in the same house, but getting them to be willing to be vulnerable with each other again, open-hearted with each other again. We're not talking about just being civil with each other. We're talking about deep, deep openness of heart. And openness of heart involves acceptance of the other person, deeper communication, love for that other person. It involves um, uh, 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 being willing to share your failings and share about their failings. In other words, we're talking about tactful honesty with each other. So that, that's the one lesson. Don't let bitterness creep into your heart and make you be separate from another. Second, don't let bitterness make you blind to the positive that you see or fail to see sometimes in other people. Now, Paul was not this way. You read First and Second Corinthians, and Paul praises these Corinthians over and over again for all kinds of things in their lives. It's just an amazing thing to see how Paul handled that. Now, what we tend to do is we tend to focus in on the bad that they've done to us and pretty soon we can't see any good in these people's lives. And one of the assignments I usually give to people who are bitter against others is I make them write down 50 things that they're thankful to God for about that other person and I tell them, I want you to pray these thanksgivings to God every day. That's one thing that really helps to cleanse them of this bitterness. Apparently, Paul must have done this because he sees plenty to praise these Corinthians about. And he does it over and over again. Third, don't let bitterness rob you of your spiritual joy. Paul had a supernatural joy that undergirded him and gave him perspective even in the midst of the most depressing circumstances. He told the Corinthians that his experience was, quote, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
That's 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Now, you say, sorrowful and rejoicing? How can those two go together? Well, they do. They, they are compatible with each other. A chapter later, he said, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 4. And some people are skeptical about that. How in the world can that be? But that's only because they have not experienced the supernatural joy of the Lord. It's not our own man-made joy that can sustain us. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter uh, 8 and verse 10. And Paul not only had joy in his own life, he wanted that joy in the lives of the Corinthians. He said in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy. He was working for, your, for their joy. And if you've lost your joy in the Lord, I want you to get it back. Now, one of the things you're, uh, I'm going to remind you of is not going to be your circumstances, changes in your circumstances which are going to restore that joy. It's constantly drinking from the fountains of God's grace. I urge you to read John Piper's books on how to get that joy in the Lord. It's a supernatural joy. Uh, you still have to pursue it. You have to work at it. But it's a joy that's a heritage of all God's people. Fourth lesson from Greece is that you need to take advantage of the providential opportunities that God sets before you. Uh, and I'm not going to get into this. It's pretty obvious. Romans 16, verse 1, he sees that Phoebe's going to be traveling to Rome uh, while he's in Corinth. And he says, oh, good. Don't go to Rome quite yet. Let me write this epistle of Romans. He writes Romans and he sends it off uh, with Phoebe to, to the church there. Last lesson from Greece is that we should imitate Paul's diligent work ethic. Now, we saw previously he knew how to relax and in, in uh, uh, you know, a couple of months he's going to be relaxing again. He's going to be taking a furlough. Uh, but here he's working his tail off. Let's quickly move to the third major point. Paul saw changed travel plans to Syria. Paul's about to go to Antioch and from Antioch travel by land up to Jerusalem uh, because that's his sending church. He's going to take a furlough. He needs a rest. His body's worn out and beaten. And so he wants to take a rest. But verse 3, Acts 20, verse 3, says, And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he's got his tickets in hand. And he, he approaches this boat. He's about to embark. And he suddenly discovers there's a problem. There's lots of other Jews that are traveling to this festival and this boat some of them know him, and some of them have decided that when he gets on board, they're going to kill him and throw him overboard. And so he has to be flexible. He has to quickly change uh, his plans, and it's a good characteristic for us as well. Now, of course, this implies the guidance of the Lord. He may have just found somebody who had overheard their conversation, but I think probably it was guidance from the Lord. But in any case, he travels one direction while his companions travel the other direction uh, with the money in their hands. And if you know geography, you know what Paul's doing. Jerusalem is south. Where all of these other Jews are going is south. He takes a boat north, way north, up to Philippi. And I think it's to just get them off his scent. It's like, okay, Paul, I guess must not be going to the Jerusalem for this festival. So he goes way north to Philippi. He immediately takes a boat south to Troas. And then he meets up with um, uh, the rest of the people. And uh, he's doing this because there's no point in risking both the money and Paul. So he, he separates the two. And then look at verse 6. 
But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, three more lessons that um, we can learn from these verses. First of all, risk is unavoidable in ministry. Like Paul, we should try to minimize risk, but we can't completely do away with risk without doing away with responsibility. The only way Paul could have avoided all risk was by saying, I'm not going to be a missionary anymore. That's the only way he could avoid And there's probably still risk even on that, isn't there? But um, what we have a tendency to do is to abandon our responsibilities because of the risks that are out there. We just can't do that. Um, when things looked bad um, and that they might be falling apart in Y2K, and you know, I didn't know if they would or wouldn't, but there was a lot of people who thought it's foolish for us to be moving to Midtown but the Lord had so clearly guided us, we just realized, well, even if there is troubles, we're not going to worry about it because the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Second, he depended upon God's guidance for protection. Uh, there have been a number of times when I've been traveling in Asia where God has given me a warning or sometimes a premonition of impending danger. And uh, some people believe oh, God doesn't even do that anymore. You can believe that if you want. For me... God's guidance has been a very, very important factor. I depend upon it. Third lesson that I learn is our lives are immortal until our work is done. Uh, though there was danger, and though Paul tries to avoid the danger, we can also realize that despite attempts of the Jews to kill Paul, they could not kill him before it was God's time for them to go. And I think this can bring us great encouragement in times of anxiety. You are invincible. You are immortal until it's God's time for you to die. And that didn't mean you throw yourself into danger. Oh, good, I'm going to throw myself on a saw blade or something like that. That may be God's time for you to go if you do that. But <laughs> we do try to minimize. We do try to avoid danger. But really, you are immortal until it's God's time for His work for you is finished. Now, let's close off this sermon by looking at the way this passage speaks of the importance of community. This is the fourth major theme. First of all, most of the year that's covered in verses 1 through 6, what he was doing is he was going from church to church trying to collect money. He was doing other things as well, but a big part of it was collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. And uh, Paul explicitly says this in Acts 24, verse 17. He says it again in Romans and in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 through 9. Let me just read the Romans passage, Romans 15, 25 through 28. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who were in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to, the, sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Now, to me, this indicates that um, mutual ministry of the saints transcends the local church. Body life transcends the local church. He's traveling over a thousand miles to deliver mercy ministry funds uh, to the poor people in Jerusalem. What Paul has done is he's engendered a love for the whole church in each of the local churches. 
And this is what I want you to have as well. When we leave this denomination, I want you to continue to have a love for the PCA and to have a love for other churches that are in the Lord, whether they're Reformed or not Reformed. doesn't matter. I want you to have a love for them. We are leaving for strategic reasons. We're not breaking off fellowship. But there are three additional lessons we can learn from this. Notice that it's not the mother church that is supporting the daughter church. It's vice versa. Now, this is fascinating in terms of mission uh, policy. Uh, some of the older missionaries, when they would plant churches, they would make the churches dependent upon them. They would put them on the dole to help them succeed. A hundred years later, they're still dependent on finances. There's still strings attached. There's still controls from the mother church. That's not the way they planted churches uh, in, 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 in the book of Acts. Unlike Paul's churches, they have not quickly become self-supporting and indigenous. And so this does inform missions practice, but the opposite extreme is also avoided. This was not a constant thing where churches are giving to Jerusalem. It's, uh, you know, this is a one-time thing, and it's not uh, centralized agencies and buildings and bureaucracies that are being supported by this gift. It was for the poor. There is no evidence whatsoever that the New Testament uh, church or general assembly had askings for every church to contribute to. You know, no major agencies or buildings that all the churches had to support. They were, in fact, general assemblies didn't even meet every year like they do here. They met when there was a need, whether it was a doctrinal controversy or some other major need that needed to uh, be decided. And so this passage shows that Paul avoided making all of the churches dependent on the mother church. And it also shows that the mother church is not such a bloated organization that it's constantly dependent upon all of the local churches. Can you see that? Both extremes, but both are extremes that were avoided. Thirdly, sending churches are often the least expected ones. You might think that Jerusalem would be the one, because they've been around the longest, that they would be the ones that are planting most of the churches. They planted some. Um, some of it was because they were scattered abroad, you know. They were kind of forced to, to go out. But it was Antioch that was the big sending church. And even more important than Antioch was that most of the church growth in the New Testament was local churches planting other churches, just like what we're doing here in, in Omaha. It's not big agencies planting other churches. Yes, there were missionaries who got the ball rolling, but most of the church was local churches planting other churches. And so one of the things I want you to pray for is the, is the uh, um, preaching site. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be getting started uh, next year. This is uh, really, I think, important for churches to do is constantly be having a vision for planting new churches. Now, I want you to notice, too, the number of people that accompanied Paul with this huge gift of Mercy Ministries money. And let's uh, read verse 4. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Now, this is a very interesting listing. The Macedonian churches are represented by Sopater, Aristarchus, and Secundus. The Galatian churches are represented by Gaius and Timothy. 
The Asian churches are represented by Tychicus and Trophimus. And according to 2 Corinthians, we've got some more not listed here. The Corinthian churches are represented by Titus and two other unnamed brethren. And all of them are accompanying this gift to Jerusalem. I think this was deliberately crafted by Paul this way. And I think this sets a, a great precedent for the modern church. Now, let me give you some lessons just from point C. I think the most obvious lesson is that we need to be above suspicion or reproach. Uh, I've talked to pastors who think it's just silly that uh, we have so many people involved uh, in, in terms of careful regulations on how we handle money. They just have one person who counts it, who deposits it, who writes checks. They don't see what the big deal is. In fact, it was kind of interesting. When I was the treasurer of EMF and also the treasurer of Heartland Christian Ministries uh, Fellowship, uh, there were, um, I was the treasurer and we had, I had hundreds of thousands of dollars going through my hands uh, every year. And one of the things right off the bat that I insisted on and they bucked and I said, I'm not even going to be your treasurer if you're not willing to do this, was I needed at least one other person to count the money with me and I wanted an audit every year. And they really bucked that. They said, that's ridiculous. We trust you, Phil. And I said, well, I trust me too. I don't have any temptation to steal the money, but that's not the point. The point is we need to be above reproach. We need to have a testimony that uh, nobody can accuse. And I doubt very much that Paul was in any way tempted to swipe any money. The reason he did it was to be above reproach. Paul had learned the hard way from Corinth that pastors can have false accusations brought against them. Now, with all of these people accompanying the money, there is no way that they're going to be able to ha successfully have a false accusation. Second lesson is that we should be accountable. If Paul needed to be accountable, who are we to think we are above accountability? Now, that's the whole purpose of presbytery and the whole purpose of a session. Uh, and, and body. We've got to have accountability. Third lesson is that we should have safeguards in place even if they are. Un uh, uncomfortable, even if they are cumbersome. It might be thought that having two identical tally sheets, uh, one for the treasurer and one for the audit committee, and uh, three counters and one person depositing money and another person who's writing checks, that that's a bit cumbersome. Well, so were Paul's safeguards. They were very, very cumbersome. Nowadays, I don't think you could be too careful. Well, that's what Paul said. Nowadays, we can't be too careful. <laughs> I'm sure that's what Paul was, was thinking back then. Uh, and so, uh, some people think that I'm being a little bit uh, too careful when I say I'm not going to counsel a woman alone. I want another person there with me. But I think it's biblical. E even if sometimes it's cumbersome, it's biblical. The last issue, this is point D, last issue of community that we see uh, hinted at is in the word we in verse 6. Commentators point out that the word we means Luke who wrote the book of Acts, Luke has now rejoined the team. Last time he used the words we and us was back in Acts 16, verse 17. And he was dropped off at Philippi, but now it appears the church is strong enough he can rejoin the team. What are some lessons we can learn from Paul's community relationship with Luke? We know that Luke was a dear friend of Paul. And I would say we need friends. We need to depend upon the community of friends within uh, the church. I think it's very important, especially if you're going through times of discouragement. Uh, there was a mother, I think, who illustrated so well 
uh, how sometimes you don't even need to say anything. Just your presence with people can be an encouragement to them. Uh, her daughter had come over for dinner and was just pouring out her heart on all of her woes and the difficulties she was going through. And the mom was thinking, what do I say to her? I feel overwhelmed too. I don't know how in the world I can solve her, her problems. They just seem so overwhelming. But she just listened and she was in her head just praying for her daughter. And then her daughter got up from the chair and said, thanks so much for sitting me, with me, mom. That's what I needed. I feel better now. And her mom thought, oh, I guess I was a help. Even though I didn't say anything, she had provided what was needed. She listened carefully and intently to her daughter. It was was an expression of care. I think Luke was listening carefully to Paul. He wrote his whole story down, didn't he? Had all the details. He listened very carefully uh, to Paul. And even Jesus needed friends like this. He had Peter, James, and John. Now, Luke helps in other ways. According to Colossians 4, verse 14, Luke was Paul's beloved doctor, his beloved physician. Paul's body was worn out, was beat up, was weak, was sickly. He needed the care of a doctor. Now, to me, this indicates God cares about our bodies. And uh, we need to take care of our bodies. We need to appreciate the medical industry that is out there and, and physicians as well. Third lesson is that God raises up workers at the perfect time. Luke came at a time when Paul needed him the most. And he's about to be imprisoned and Luke's going to go to him you know, in Rome. And so he comes at a time when he needs help. God knows how to meet our needs as well. We might think, oh, we desperately need somebody for a given ministry. God knows exactly when needs need to be met. And he can fill those. Now, that's all I'm going to say on these uh, six verses. Uh, But I hope you found these first six verses very, very encouraging. They're not just about names and places and dates. They are a call to steadfastness and ministry. And so my final exhortation to you is to persevere, maintain good attitudes, trust God, and connect with the body. That's what Paul did. And I exhort you to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the example of the Apostle Paul uh, that he, in the midst of great discouragement and despondency, was able to find your supernatural joy. Father, help us not to walk simply in human joy. Help us to walk in the supernatural, to know that joy that is beyond any description, uh, that peace that passes understanding. Father, the fruit of the Spirit, not counterfeits that our flesh can produce, but Father, we want to walk in the Spirit, rejoice in the Spirit, sing in the Spirit. We pray that His empowering would be our empowering, sustaining us through the most difficult times that we might experience. I pray that each one here would experience what Paul experienced deeply within their soul. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.